Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. As the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to reclaim Russian-held territory, Vladimir Putin is showing no signs of backing down. In fact, there are concerns the conflict might escalate after Putin demanded snap referendums in four occupied areas of Ukraine and has announced he's mobilizing up to 300,000 Russian reservists to bolster his faltering war efforts. In an address to the UN General Assembly, the Ukrainian president says it's time for Russia to pay for its war crimes. A crime has been committed against Ukraine and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men. For more on what's happening right now in Ukraine, I'm joined by Canada's ambassador in Kyiv, Larissa Galadza. Thank you so much for joining us today, ambassador. Can you tell us a little bit about what the situation is on the ground right now and what the feeling is with the Ukrainian people? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, it, it's September, and in, in two important ways, this is like any other September, with uh, kids going back to school and the weather turning. But, of course, those things uh, remind us very acutely um, that the war continues to rage, and this country is, is still suffering very badly. Uh, a lot of children have not gone back to school because they don't have bomb shelters. Every school has to have a shelter. Um, and, uh, and the winter is turning, and millions of people still don't have homes. I recently drove to Irpin again, the same town we were in with the Prime Minister back in May, and uh, those, those bombed-out buildings, many of them look exactly as they were uh, back, back then. So where are their residents? Uh, where are they going to live as it gets colder? Um, so these are these are urgent matters, and 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 all of this is happening against a very very dynamic um, security and, and political backdrop. The uh, the air raid sirens uh, continue to wail. The missiles continue to fly. Russia continues to attack. Uh, Ukrainians uh, continue to make excellent progress uh, in in the Kharkiv region, but as they as they uh, go into those newly liberated areas, they're finding uh, new uh, and more examples of the horrors that Russian troops have, have inflicted on, on Ukrainians. And then this week, it's been, you don't know where to turn for the action. Um, the, yes, the war continues in Kharkiv, in Donbass, in, in Kherson. There is uh, Putin's speech. As you mentioned, the mobilization, the sham referendums, the threats of nuclear war. Um, there's uh, the release of 215 prisoners of war. That's huge. Um, there was President Zelensky's incredible speech to the UN uh, General Assembly. Uh, the Prime Minister spoke with, the, with President Zelensky this week as well. The exhumation of bodies continues in Izum, 445 bodies. Um, and that's just... That's just this week. It's a reminder of the sharp contrast to the reality of the war in Ukraine um, that so many here are not seeing in the news every single day. The disruption of daily life, schools, bomb shelters, uh, the incredible cold that you feel in Ukraine in the winter with those winds coming off of the plains. I want to ask you about the threats you mentioned uh, from Vladimir Putin, those nuclear threats in particular. How real do you think that is? 
Those are not new threats. That is something um, that we've heard from uh, from Putin before and consistently. Uh, and as the Ukrainians uh, say, um, they don't believe them, but you have to take them seriously. And the Ukrainians themselves say the way to do that is to show strength uh, and to sh show strength in the face of those threats and, uh, and, and to not give in and to not stand down. Where do you foresee the war going in the immediate, immediate future? Because you've had this phenomenal success of the Ukrainian offensive, which took back territory much more quickly and successfully than a lot of people were expecting. Now you have Vladimir Putin holding these sham snap referendums in occupied areas to try to say, oh, look, see, they want us to secede. We can annex them. It's completely legal. Uh, him calling up 300,000 reservists. Do you think that there is going to be a real spike in the bloodshed in coming days? I think you're absolutely right that um, what what Putin has, has has called for and and announced is uh, is a clear evidence um, that he is desperate. He's desperate because the Ukrainians have the upper hand in the Kharkiv region and uh, and and they are and the Russians are hugely degraded in 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 the other parts uh, that they that where they continue to hold territory. Uh, so he needs to make a quick move. Uh, where is this going to go? Well, first of all, the international community has already said very strongly it will not recognize these referenda. So if he thinks that's going to accomplish something, it's not. The Ukrainians likewise have said, we don't care what you do. In fact, they've been through it before. They, 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 Russia held a referendum in 2014 in, in Crimea. And they don't care. They're going to continue fighting for, uh, for their territory until every square meter of it is returned uh, to, to Ukrainian control. Uh, Canada and its allies are working very hard uh, in in light of, of these uh, of these announcements from from Putin. Um, first of all, to continue to undermine the the lies, the disinformation, the crazy messaging, uh, to isolate Russia with additional uh, sanctions, uh, to support Ukraine in defending its territory and uh, and taking it back, and then of course to ensure that that the international community remains steadfast in its support for international uh, international law. Uh, speaking of Canada's support for Ukraine, of course, we've sent M777 howitzers, which are big artillery guns. The Ukrainians are asking for more of those. They're also asking for Canadian labs, light armored vehicles that have a big cannon turret on them. We've agreed to send armored vehicles so far, but not ones that have weapons. Um, is this something that the Canadian government is looking at? Will we send the Ukrainians more weapons? Do we even have them to be able to send? We've got more weapons still on the way. The package that the uh, that the government announced of uh, $500 million in weapons is uh, is still being delivered. Uh, it is is contracted for. It is on its way. The training is happening, uh, and we're doing this uh, every step of the way in concert in tight coordination with the Ukrainians to make sure that we do in fact deliver what they need. There's no point giving them things that we happen to have and that they don't need. So um, that's that's what's happening right now. And we know that what we're providing uh, goes into service. Uh, we will help them use it properly. We will help them maintain it. Uh, and that is going to make an incredible contribution to this fight that's going to go on for a while longer still. What are your Ukrainian counterparts asking you for? What what would be helpful to them? Because obviously we've announced this package, but they're they're saying they need more. What more do they need? So they do need weapons. Everyone, you can talk to the 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 the, the, the most humanitarian of humanitarians, and they'll tell you what they need. But the first thing they say is 
weapons. Um, they need tanks, um, and uh, I'm sure you are aware that they're they're trying to get those from their European, uh, their close European partners. So number one ask is for weapons. Uh, a number two ask is uh, continued support for their macro financial stability. Here, Canada has uh, provided almost two billion dollars in support to make sure that that Ukraine uh, doesn't uh, uh, fall apart economically. Um, their export economy, as you know, is hugely curtailed. Their Black Sea is, is cut off, except for these special uh, special corridors that, that take the grain out so that people don't starve in other parts of the world. Industry is interrupted. So the economy is in bad shape, and uh, Canada and our partners are helping to stabilize that. The third thing they ask for is support for accountability, uh, for uh, holding uh, uh, Putin, holding uh, every uh, soldier all the way down the line accountable for the atrocities that have been committed here, and in particular, to set up an international tribunal to try Russia for the crime of aggression. Um, so that is a very clear ask of Canada and all our partners. And the last thing they ask for is help with the recovery, however we can help with the recovery. Recovery is that part of, of, the, of, the, of the effort that is required to open schools, make sure they have shelters, um, build temporary homes or homes for people that don't have them. All this stuff has been right away. Um, uh, rebuild some medical clinics, make sure that the most critical of critical infrastructure is back up and running in new liberated areas. So those are sort of the four, four key aspects. Uh, you, Ambassador, of course, are Canada's ambassador there. You're in Kyiv. Uh, the embassy was formally reopened, quote-unquote, by the prime minister, but it was, it was very symbolic. When are we expecting the embassy to actually reopen in a way where it will be able to process visas, bring people out of Ukraine, and, and function as a fully capable embassy would? We have, we've been here since May 8th uh, with a team, and our priority was to re-engage in high-level diplomatic uh, and political in engagement. It was, And that's what we did. And we had a team here, and we've had a team here steadily since since the 8th of May, when the Prime Minister uh, uh, came to visit President Zelensky. Um, it was always meant to be a gradual and rolling reopening, first things first. Uh, and then uh, always with uh, top of mind is the security and, and safety of our personnel. We're now at a point where we have a larger team here. We have more of our local staff engaged. Uh, we are working at the chancery, uh, but the embassy has been functioning all the way along. The building, the chancery is, is open. We're glad to be back in there. Uh, and uh, visas continue to be processed online as they always have been. We have been accepting uh, visa applications in the embassy in, a, in, a, in, in many years. So, um, so we're, uh, we're, 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 serving the priorities as they've been given to us by Minister Jolie, by the Prime Minister, and we are incredibly active. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today, and please do stay safe along with all of your staff. Thank you very, very much. A group of black civil servants says the federal government is resorting to stall tactics to deny them their day in court. Nearly two years after they sounded the alarm on anti-black racism, in the public service. More than 1,500 black federal employees have joined the proposed class action lawsuit, taking aim at what they describe as the government's wrongful failure to hire and promote black employees in the public service. The lawsuit alleges decades of discrimination and harassment against tens of thousands of black employees and job applicants who say they were subjected to racist comments and jokes and passed over for promotions or 
just not even hired in the first place. The effects of that exclusion were debilitating, with employees reporting anxiety, shame, and significant financial losses. The lawsuit is seeking $2.5 billion in damages, including compensation for lost income and other benefits. Joining me now with more on the lawsuit is one of its lead plaintiffs, Nicholas Marcus Thompson, Executive Director of the Black Class Action Secretariat. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nicholas. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about when you first started to notice a pattern in your own life and in the lives of your black colleagues who are working for the government of Canada that you went, you know what, this is discrimination, this is racism? Well, when I joined the public service um, uh, about eight years ago, I immediately noticed that there was a, a very troubling trend. And that trend was that black employees were in entry-level positions, other racialized employees were just above that, and the leadership of the public service was reserved for white employees. And that, um, I noticed workers uh, working for 15 years, 20 years, and they're in the same position. and. Uh, that has really culminated in uh, significant psychological injuries for workers, uh, mental health injuries, and, and as well as the, the financial losses. So, and, and that's where really I decided that we had to do something about it. And I started talking with workers across the public service, and they told me the same thing, that they were very well qualified and were being denied promotions, were... were um, uh, they experience uh, racism in the workplace. Um, one uh, worker was told that sh we should go back to the good old days where we had slaves. And where we no had slaves. Correct. Uh, the manager told her we should go back to the good old days where we had slaves. And that uh, manager faced no consequences. Um, and it's, it is that constant ability of public service leaders uh, to make comments like that and there's no consequences for it. That's, it's atrocious, it's atrocious and that's very direct and as you're saying also this insidious systemic racism where people are not being promoted, they're staying in the same job their entire career while their colleagues around them are promoted. People hear the stories and the numbers but I think it's powerful when we have some of those examples. Can you share with us some of your story or some of your colleagues' stories that are involved in this lawsuit that have led you to this point? Sure. The, the, the public service, um, uh, black workers make up the largest uh, racialized group in the public service. So that's 3.8% um, of the almost 300,000 uh, public service. And black workers, uh, in terms, uh, black workers are the least paid in the public service. Despite being the largest group, it is the least paid group, uh, representing just over 1% in the executive rank. To put that into perspective, the executive ranks of the public service has approximately 8,000 uh, employees, and black workers make up just about 100 uh, executives in the entire public service that prides itself in being inclusive and diverse and uh, merit-based. Uh, but that is not the case uh, for uh, black workers. Uh, many black workers, 70% are women, mothers and grandmothers who have dedicated their lives to serve in Canada and in return 
Canada has denied them promotional opportunities, has uh, treated them inhumanely, um, and, and all of that resu results in a denial of basic human rights. And uh, it, it also results in uh, degradation. Um, it also results in uh, humiliation. Uh, workers have told me that they have attempted suicide because they have nowhere to turn to, no recourse in the workplace, uh, lack of support from their, uh, from their unions, and uh, just nowhere to turn to, and that they have suicidal ideation. Um, experts have told us how this discrimination impacts your brain. It actually causes your brain to move in a particular way, which has a direct impact on your parenting, on your social life, on your relationships. Um, uh, so black workers are in a crisis in Canada's public service. Canadians like to say, we're not that kind of country. We don't have that kind of racism here, which is partially exactly why we wanted to sit down and talk to you about the story. What do you say to Canadians who are surprised to be hearing this today? Well, I would say um, to the government's own data does not, uh, it, it tells us very clearly and supports what workers have, have been saying, is that they're being denied opportunities they're asked to train uh, uh, new employees. They're good enough to train new employees. They're good enough to act uh, for a temporary period in a higher position. Uh, but those positions almost always goes to uh, white employees and some uh, racialized employees. So my message to Canadians are uh, black people want to uh, fully participate and uh, they're being denied that opportunity at the highest level in the largest employer uh, in Canada. So listen, listen to us, be an ally, and, and let's work together because we want to make Canada a better place and to fully participate uh, in Canada. I, I imagine a tremendous financial consequence too because federal government pensions mm -hmm. are based on the rank you retire at. So if you're never, uh, never promoted, then that's having a significant impact. How has the government responded so far to your proposed class action lawsuit? Well, the government is speaking from the both sides of its mouth. They're saying one thing publicly and they're fighting black workers in court. They've just brought in an expert from the U.S. to challenge their own data. They continue to bring motions to delay, um, uh, to delay the case. Uh, the government has fully acknowledged that this issue exists in all of its institutions and that the pain and damage that it, cause, uh, that it causes is real. And then it shows up in court fighting black workers, forcing black workers to recount the trauma that they've endured at the hands of the government for decades. Nicholas, what needs to happen going forward? How would you like to see the government respond and what changes need to be made? Well, firstly, the government needs to come to the table with workers and uh, work with, with us to create those solutions that, that, that is necessary. And that is the legislative changes, amendments to the Employment Equity Act. We're seeking to create a separate uh, and distinct category for black workers under the legislation to ensure that black workers are not left behind uh, when it comes to hiring and promotional opportunities. Uh, we're also seeking uh, accountability 
through an accountability commission to police the public service to ensure that um, that black workers do not face uh, this discrimination uh, again and we are presently building a national and international coalition with organization from across the country um, and, and internationally as well to bring attention to this issue that is happening in Canada. We're scheduled to make a major announcement uh, next week, so stay tuned uh, on that. We will absolutely be tuning in for that announcement. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. More than a dozen people have been killed in nationwide protests rocking Iran in what's proving to be the biggest challenge to that country's regime in years. The protests were sparked by the death of a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman earlier this month who died in police custody. Masha Amini was arrested by the country's notorious morality police for allegedly wearing the regime-mandated headscarf too loosely. Her name has become a clarion call for Iranians who want to see the compulsory hijab abolished. The protests have spread to at least 50 cities, largely driven by Iranian women. Some have removed their hijabs in public, considered a crime in Iran. Others have gone even further, openly burning their headscarves. Authorities have responded with a violent crackdown. Internet and cellular service is down in much of the country, cutting off access to Instagram and WhatsApp so people can't post what's happening. The United States imposed sanctions last week on Iran's morality police, holding it responsible for the 22-year-old woman's death. Also expected to make news this week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be in Tokyo to attend the state funeral for former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated earlier this year. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for The West Block.